0: Hello and welcome to episode 116 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Todd Zolecki. Todd covers the Phillies for MLB.com. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Todd Zolecki. Todd, thanks for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks
1: for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Well, Todd, I ask everyone this right at the top of the show. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place.
1: Well, I, I just think that was the first sport that I loved growing up. I grew up in Milwaukee. Uh, Wisconsin. I was born in 1975. So like really one of my first memories of anything was the 1982 Brewers. They they won their first and only AL pennant that year. Uh, Robin Yount won the AL MVP. Uh, Pete Vukovich won the Cy Young Award. And, um, you know, Paul Mahler, Cecil Cooper, Ben Ogilvie, Gorman Thomas, Raleigh Fingers, all those guys. And that just kind of captured my imagination. Uh, with baseball and and uh, you know I've just loved the game ever since really.
0: Some quality mustaches on those teams, some quality mustache baseball cards coming from players on those teams.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, I I got in the baseball card collecting because of that team. Yeah, yeah. You Robin Young, Gorman Thomas, Raleigh Fingers, uh P Ladd, who was a relief pitcher on that team, Charlie Moore. I think pretty much everybody on that team had a mustache and I, I think but other than I think Uh, Ted Simmons and Paul Molitor. (laughs) Everybody had a a good set of hair and and good facial hair.
0: Well, now you're covering the Phillies, and it's been quite an eventful offseason for the Phillies so far, and I think we knew this was going to happen. I feel like this offseason has been hyped so much over the last few years, and the Phillies have always been tie to it even two years out people were saying philly's going to have money they're going to be spending at that point point. and we thought that this offseason class might even be bigger and better than it actually ended up being but it still did yield harper and machado and obviously harper signed with the phillies how far and ahead do you think that the phillies were specifically targeting him as their main acquisition off this offseason was this really something that was two years in the making
1: yeah i i think so maybe even longer than that um you know when when Matt Klintak took over for uh, Ruben Amaro Jr. several years ago. Uh, They knew it was going to be a long rebuild and and they look years in advance, uh, not just one, two years in advance. They look three, four, five years down the road and, and look at potential free agents. And so I have no doubt that uh, Matt Klintak and Ed Rice, the assistant GM and Andy McPhail, the team president, kind of have a board, so to speak, and, and say, okay, in 2018-19 in um, Harper, Machado could be available. You know, 2020-21 season, Mike Trout and Mookie Betts could be available. You know, they're very aware that, you know, Francisco Lindor down the road will be, you know, all those guys. Uh, so, yeah, I think that this is something they were planning, you know, years years in advance.
0: There was some speculation going into the offseason that the Phillies were targeting Harper and Machado. Was it ever realistic that they could land both?
1: No, I don't think so. You know, I think if they, well, let me put it this way. If they really wanted to, they could have gone out and gotten both players. But I don't think that it they felt like it made enough sense for them. You know, Because they, they're a team that had kind of multiple holes to fill. And if you spend all of your money on two players, you still have several holes to fill, uh, on, on the roster. Um, and I think they want to maintain some level of flexibility down the road. Um, so Hey, in two years, if Mike Trout becomes available, they could possibly take a, take a run at Mike Trout. But, um, no, I don't think that they were ever going into the off season believing, I think we can sign both of these guys. I think they're like, we're going to take one of the two. If we can get one of the two, great. If not, uh, we're going to try to make other improvements, and I think that's what you saw this offseason. You know, they started out uh, this offseason uh, by, by getting Gene Sakura, then they got McCutcheon and David Robertson, and they, the, they made the J.T. Realmuto trade, and they did all of those things because they just wanted to be prepared in the event that Bryce Harper and, and Manny Machado went somewhere else.
0: Yeah. And they definitely, the owner kind of set himself up for a little bit when he made that comment about spending stupid money, which isn't quite what he said, but he implied that they were ready to spend a lot of money this offseason. And for a while, it looked like, I mean, the days before Harper eventually signed, we were hearing reports that they didn't think that the Phillies were going to get it done, that Harper just didn't like the city. How long was their offer actually on the table to Harper?
1: Well, he signed on a Thursday, and I forget what the date was. It might have been like February, or I should say agreed to terms. It was on a Thursday. The Phillies did not actually make an official offer until that Sunday. So they only they, all that entire time was basically a big, long setup uh, to that moment, uh, Sunday night when they finally made an offer. And for folks that don't really remember, John Middleton and his wife flew out to Las Vegas that Friday uh, to meet with Bryce and his wife and Scott Boris and his crew, uh, John Milton and his wife ended up staying the morning meeting with Scott, having lunch again with Bryce and his wife. He flies back to Florida on Sunday, uh, to, uh, you know, the East coast where he has a second home. And then that night they finally make their first offer. So it was not long, you know, that's, that's kind of the funny thing about these negotiations is that everybody assumes that from the first day of the off season, the Phillies and Scott Boris are kind of going back on different offers. And, and you know, there's a lot of back and forth negotiations. It, it really isn't that way. There's just a lot of talking, a lot of figuring out what people want. And then finally, you know, and then that's kind of how Scott Boris operates. And then finally, the Phillies made an offer. And, and four days later, the, the deal is sealed.
0: That's really interesting. And I wonder if that was the case with Harper and Machado all off season. that the reason why it took so long is that they didn't actually receive any formal offers until a week before they signed them.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, Boris and uh, Dan Lozano, who's Manny Machado's agent, you hear a lot of stories about how you don't really get any feedback from them, uh, that, that you, know, you could call them up and make an offer. The Phillies did make an offer to Machado in December after he visited because Dan Lozano indicated that, hey, we want offers and we want some offers on the table. Uh, and so the Phillies did, uh, Scott never really made that ultimatum or gave that ultimatum, I guess, until, you know, until late February. Um, but it's, you know, it's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's just a real interesting kind of process, uh, how this all ends up playing out. And it's, it's not quite what people I guess, uh, expect it is. And quite frankly, uh, I didn't expect it to kind of go like this, but, but yeah, Lozano and Boris, you know, they're 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 just different different animals. You know, they they are more kind of I don't want to say uh, shady, but they're kind of more. They kind of keep teams in the dark in terms of what they're looking for, what they want. If you make an offer, you might not hear anything back for a couple weeks, and teams are sitting there going, "I should be. Does this mean we're out? Does this mean we're in? Does this mean they've we've insulted them?" Uh, so there's a lot of kind of cat and mouse play going on, uh, you know. In all directions.
0: Shortly after Harper debuted for the Phillies, he got hit in the ankle by a fastball, and he missed some time. He did play today in a minor league game, I believe. What's the update on his health status and how it how his ankle is feeling?
1: We we talked to him yesterday, um, and he seems to be feeling pretty good. he, yeah, he played got like a, I think four at bats today in, the, in, a, in a minor league game at Carpenter Complex down here in Clearwater. Played a little bit of right field. It says he says he basically got to the ballpark on Sunday. There was no swelling. Didn't really feel a lot of pain. He he ran on it pregame, and uh, he you know he said, hey, if I felt anything on a pregame running, doing any sort of drills with the training staff, I probably wouldn't have played. But he, he felt good enough that he ended up DHing on Sunday. So now it, it, he's he's going to. Um, basically just kind of work out on, on Tuesday in Clearwater. And then on Wednesday, they play a Grapefruit League game against the Tigers, and he is expected to be back in the lineup playing right field against the Tigers. And then there's basically Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, uh, wrapping up the Grapefruit League schedule. So it's going to be interesting to see how many games he plays. He's really trying to get his timing down at the plate. Um, you know, that's He's kind of uh, – I mean, he's not in a bad spot. I mean, he's going to be fine. But I, I think, obviously, he wishes he – could have had his whole spring training under his belt. He's kind of trying to jam in a lot of work in a a very short period of time.
0: We are in an era of shifting. Shifting has been very prominent over the last decade, and Bryce is used to that. But what we're going to see a lot more of this year and going forward are four-man outfields. And that's something that Bryce has seen, I think, a little bit this year, and it's gone against Chris Bryant as well. Is Bryce prepared for the level of shifting that's going to happen to him this year, not just with infielders, but multiple outfielders as well? Is he prepared for all of this?
1: Yeah, I think he's used to teams positioning themselves in extreme manners to try to take away his effectiveness. Now, it was interesting. He said that in in his first Grapefruit League game uh, against the Blue Jays, I believe, he said that was the first time he had ever seen a four-man outfield against them, And, and you know, I don't know how often he is going to see it. it. Certainly, teams are have, you know, two different teams tried it. So certainly, teams are thinking about it. Um, are they Are they going to do it in season? And if so, how is he going to respond to it? You know, that's that's the key question. Uh, you know, I, I read there's a Sports Info Solutions talked about this. Uh, Maybe four or five days ago, and they said that hey, if, you know, Bryce Harper is actually not the greatest guy on the Phillies to make you'd want to try a four four-man outfield on. It's actually Reese Hoskins, you know, because Reese actually pulls a lot of balls on the ground, and uh, and he also hits a lot of balls in the air, high in the air, to the opposite field. So if you're going to play for a four-man outfield, it might be Reese Hoskins seeing more of that than Bryce Harper. Now, I guess maybe teams will try it with both hitters. Uh, but if they do try with both hitters, it's going to be something that they're going to have to try to adjust and, and try to work through. And, 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 it, and it might not be easy. It might be frustrating at times.
0: Harper's defense last year was bad. It was bad using the metrics that are publicly available on Baseball Reference and fan graphs, DRS, and UZR. It was bad on Baseball Prospectus' defensive metrics, and it was bad on the StatCast data that gets released as well. Uh, basically, no matter what you were looking at, he was poor defensively last year. Any reason, any indication that that will be different this year?
1: Yeah, the defensive metrics thing is interesting, and and uh, you know, there's a lot of I've heard so many different theories, and, and it's possible that all of them could be right, or it's possible that hey, that he just had a bad year defensively. You know, Scott Boris said, hey, you know, Bryce hyperextended his left knee uh, in, in September of 2017, and and last season he wasn't playing on full strength. Bryce said, hey, you know, I played like 65 games in center field last year. Uh, That's a lot of running around. It's not ideal for me. That kind of wore me out uh, and affected my defense. Uh, There was some thought that, you know, Bryce, because he has had injuries earlier in his career, uh, going into a big uh, free agent season, that he might have played a little bit safer in the outfield, maybe not gone all out on certain plays and maybe been – more aware of running into the wall instead of going into it full speed. You know, all those things could make sense. I I was just talking with somebody today with the Phillies about it. And, you know, they said that they did a ton of research and analysis on Bryce Harper's defense. And their conclusion is that they do not believe that last season's numbers, which were, like you said, they were among some of the worst in baseball. They don't believe that those numbers are going to uh, continue on over there is they, they think that he's going to be an average, an average right fielder, not a, not a goal glover, but if Bryce Harper does what he does offensively and he's simply an average outfielder, that's going to be a, you know, that's going to be a, a, a lot of wins over the course of that, you know, that 13 year contract, especially early in that 13 year contract.
0: Do you think part of the reason they felt comfortable going to 13 years? Do you think that there's a sense growing in the National League that the DH is coming?
1: Yeah, I think I think that has something to do with it. You know, I think the fact that there could be rule changes coming. You know, uh, pitchers having to face a minimum of three batters is is huge for a guy like Bryce. You know, instead of facing that that tough left-handed reliever that can only get out left-handed batters. You know now, uh, managers are gonna have to think twice. Of okay, do we do we bring in a tough lefty to face Bryce? And now we now this guy that gets crushed by right-handers is gonna have to face Hoskins and Andrew McCutcheon or Hoskins and JT Realmuto. I think that has something to do with it. Um, if if baseball ends up banning the shift, uh, either infield shifts, outfield shifts, or both, um, that has something to do with it. But I, I, I do. But I really think that the biggest thing here, uh, in terms of their Willingness to go to thirteen years is, I think they knew they had to beat the Giancarlo Stanton number of three hundred twenty-five million, and I think they just wanted to spread that out as many as many years as possible, lower that average annual value, so it doesn't affect them uh, as much for the for in terms of the luxury tax situation. You know that by dropping down the average annual value from say it could have been over say it was a ten-year contract three hundred thirty million that $33 million AAV really prevents you from maybe extending Reese Hoskins and JT Real Muto or going out and signing Mike Trout down the road or pursuing somebody like Mike Trout down the road. Now that it's down to about $25.4 million, now you have a little bit more flexibility, like I said, to make those moves. If you want to extend Hoskins and Real Muto, if you want to do both of those things and go after Mike Trout or, or whatever, it's just that, that, that I think is a really big important factor uh in the bryce harper contract that that additional flexibility you know you know say i i've been telling people like just forget about the 13 years like don't worry about the 13 years uh just worry about the aav you know the phillies know that they're not going to get like very unlikely to get superstar power and in production when bryce is you know 36 37 38 years old but they're willing to kind of sacrifice that if it means that while Bryce is in his prime, they can have other players in their prime and win a bunch of World Series as early in that contract.
0: Before the Phillies signed Harper, they had already made themselves significantly better. They had traded for Gene Segura and JT Realmuto. They had signed David Robertson and Andrew McCutcheon and a couple other relievers as well. They had made themselves a better team, and obviously they got significantly better when they added Harper. I'm curious about the Real Mudo trade in particular because there were other catchers on the market, free agents, that just would have cost them money. Why not sign Ramos or Grandal and keep Sixto?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think what it came down to is they they did really believe in the potential of Jorge Alfaro. Um, you know and, and they looked at Grandal, they looked at Wilson Ramos. Um, as you know, Grandel maybe particularly is, is, you know, he could be considered an upgrade over Alfaro, but I think they looked at somebody like Wilson Ramos or any of these other catchers available and said, is he going to be that much of an upgrade over Jorge Alfaro? And, And the answer they kept coming back to was no, you know, Alfaro, he strikes out a ton. That's obviously the huge thing with him, but he's an excellent pitch framer. He's got a rocket for an arm. Uh, he can run the bases extremely well for a catcher. And he has a ton of power. So they're sitting there going, we've got this guy making the league minimum. Uh, is, is Wilson Ramos going to be that much better? He's, he, you know, he's injury prone. He can't run. He's not that great behind the plate. And they just said, you know, we're going to go with Alfaro. But then when Real Muto came around, they're going like, this guy is – a much better version of Alfaro. You know, he, he can hit, he can throw, he can, you know um, he can run and they're working on him on his pitch framing this year. So they think that he's going to take a jump behind the plate in that direction. So, so I think in the Phillies, mind to get the, what they consider to be the best catcher in baseball, it was worth giving up a top prospect for. And, and, you know, Hey, sometimes you gotta, you gotta take like, make risky moves, I guess. And sometimes you just have to go for it. Sometimes it'll work out. Sometimes it won't work out. But, you know, Pat Gillick always said, hey, you can't be afraid to, to make a mistake. You can't be afraid to fail. And, and I think that's what the Phillies were looking at. They're like, hey, we have an opportunity to add the best catcher in baseball in this prime. Uh, we, don't, we think Sixto Sanchez will be great. We don't know it. Um, so let's go for the sure thing right now and let's get J.T. Real Muto.
0: One of the benefits of some of the acquisitions that they've made is that they get to move Reese Hoskins back to first base. Hoskins, we were speaking of poor defensive metrics with Harper. Hoskins, I think, was the worst-rated defender in baseball last year. He got crushed in the outfield. Do they expect not only defense to improve putting him back at first base, but do they expect the offense to tick up as well now that he's back to his more natural position?
1: yeah I think there is definitely some of that thinking that you know now now Reese isn't sitting there in the outfield like I would say nervous, but just thinking about playing in the outfield and, and just working on something that he was never really comfortable with, and I you know going back to your natural position, now you can just kind of do what you do, and I don't think the Phillies are expecting him to be a goal Glover, you know he's not that type of defensive player, but I think they're hoping he can play like Ryan Howard type of defense just you know, get the balls that are hit to him, you know, dig some balls out of the dirt, you know, and just, and just be, just be average, you know, if he can be average and, and he can, maybe, you know, he'll, he'll continue to develop offensively and he, he he could become a force, but I think overall, certainly, you know, taking Reese out of left field. And if, if Harper does return to kind of that average form in right field, their deep, their off field defense got a lot better. It's not great defensive outfield, but again, You take a McCutcheon's an upgrade over Hoskins and Bryce Harper. They believe is is an upgrade over Nick Williams. Nick Williams actually grades out as as a pretty poor defensive outfielder as well. So, yeah, overall, I think the outfield, you know, the defense should be better. Um, And that's and that's another reason why the Phillies kind of think that you know the pitching staff will be better this year.
0: At the back end of that staff, they had signed David Robertson this offseason. Is the expectation that he will be the closer this year? He's going
1: to close some games, I believe, but. And uh, talking with Gabe and um, Matt Klentak and you know uh, others in camp, it's going to kind of continue to be what it was last year. It's going to be David Robertson. It's going to be uh, you know one night with David Robertson. is going to be one night Sir Anthony Dominguez and Hector Naris is throwing the ball and, and his splitter is working. He could be closing some games. So I think it's going to be kind of a three-headed monster uh, to at least to start the season, but. You know, somebody kind of establishes himself. False in Sir Anthony Dominguez becomes absolutely unhittable in the ninth inning. You know, they might end up going that way, but I think the 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 thought process right now is they're going to they're going to use these guys based on matchups. You know, David Roberts and his uh, splits—he's been pretty effective in the the past against lefties. So, if it's the the Phillies have a one-run lead going in the eighth, and the lineup is loaded with tough right-handers, maybe they go with Sir Anthony Dominguez in the eighth inning. Uh, if in the ninth inning you have a couple tough lefties, you know, then you go with Dave Robertson, and vice versa. You know, if it's lefties in the eighth, you go with, or you know, righties in the eighth, you go with Anthony. Um You know, you know what I'm saying? So it, it it's going to be a lot of mixing and matching, I think, and I think that's just the way that Gabe Kapler likes it.
0: How's J T. Realmuto adjusting to? having to work with an entirely new pitching staff. I imagine, as a catcher, that's an extremely difficult thing to do to change teams in the offseason, especially a starting catcher who's going to be playing the majority of the games. How is he adjusting to just learning about all of these new pitchers?
1: Yeah, I think he's been doing a pretty good job, and he's been get, get, giving uh, pretty good feedback to the pitchers. They've sounded really appreciative of, of the feedback he's getting. You know, He's been working hard with you know, the Philly and the catching coaches, and They've been working hard with him on improving his pitch framing, but in terms of working with all these pitchers, you know, he's had an opportunity to catch these guys multiple times, not only in game situations, but in, but in bullpen sessions, you know, early in camp. And, and I think he's, uh, I I talked with him a few days ago about this and he really seems to be enjoying the transition so far. He seems to be excited about it. I think he's excited really because, you know, he has a chance to win and, And there are some talented pitchers on this roster, even though some of them haven't reached the potential yet. But I think he sees a lot of good young arms, and I think he sees it as you know he has a chance to kind of help maybe you know help these young guys kind of take it a step to the next level.
0: This is Gabe Kapler's second year as manager, and he definitely had some ups and downs on his first year. I like Gabe Kapler. I like that he is a thinks differently and is afraid, not afraid to do things that are outside of the box. I think that when you have someone like that, it's okay to let them try things that are different. But his communication did seem to... Some players were offended by it, it seemed like. Some players were saying it wasn't there, especially earlier in the season. What has he learned from that? the lack of communication and the lack of response, honestly, to some of his ideas heading into his second year?
1: Yeah, I think he really understands that he needs to adjust and do a better job in some areas. And I think in, in the communication and just the listening to the players. And I, I thought, I think it's really interesting this spring, um, you know, going back to last season, Gabe said my most important spots in the lineup are the number two and the number four spots. I wanted my two best hitters to hit two and four. He says he has seen evidence uh, the analytical uh, the, the, the 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 data that says the two and the four spots are the most important spots to the lineup. So that's why last season he hit Reese Hoskins second, Carlos Santana F- fourth, or or vice versa. And that just bothered Phillies fans to no end. But he's like, listen, it's a marginal edge. We're looking for the marginal edge. This is what makes the most sense. Now this season, interestingly enough, um, he has said. He thinks he's going to go into the season with Gene Segura hitting second, Bryce Harper hitting third, and Reese Hoskins hitting fourth. And that's, what's interesting about that is, is you can make the argument that Gene Segura might be the fifth or sixth best hitter on the team, and now he's hitting second. And I asked Gabe about this the other day. I said, you, I said I can make the argument that J.T. Real Muto, uh, if, you're, if you want Harper in the third spot, I said, you can make the argument that J.T. Real Muto or Andrew McCutcheon should be hitting second, can you? And he said... You can make that argument, but I also am acknowledging the fact that certain players prefer to hit in certain spots. So if Gene Segura really wants to hit second, really feels the most comfortable hitting second, am I going to go for that marginal edge, um, you know, over the course of a 162-game season, versus letting Gene Segura want, you know, who prefers to hit second, hit second, or? Am I going to have Bryce Harper hit second when he might want to hit third? You, you, you know what I mean. So he seems to be kind of listening uh, to players in that regard. You know, we've we've asked him a lot about you know teams using the opener and could you use the opener? And he said, "Listen, um, I would. I think it's a great idea. I would definitely be interested in trying it. But on this team with this with this starting rotation, guys that have the talent to come out of the gate firing, he's like, I have to be aware of." how an opener would be perceived in the clubhouse. So he, he seems to be listening in that regard. I think the other thing he learned is, and this story kind of came out today, ESPN first reported it, that, you know, uh, players were, you know, playing video games during games and, you know, in the clubhouse on their phones and whatnot. And you know last year he went into the season saying, Hey, we're not going to have any rules. I want players to be themselves and, and to express themselves individually but I think he learned that you need to have rules, you know, you have to have some sort of discipline in the clubhouse. And, and I think, uh, you know, early in camp, they can get a bunch of players together kind of lay down the law and and what are expectations for players in terms of policing themselves. And I think that's another thing that, um, that he learned is that, you know, you have to have rules. You have to have some discipline. You have to have some accountability. You can't just expect people to do everything on their own when you're in the leadership position.
0: Yeah, that story broke that not only were players playing Fortnite during games in the clubhouse, but that Carlos Santana had to go in and smash TVs in the clubhouse to sort of put an end to it. It's crazy. How many people were aware that this was going on?
1: Well, I'll tell you what, I i did I did not hear, uh, I honestly did not hear that uh, players were playing video games during the actual games. I know that Fortnite is huge, and I know that players played it all the time in their hotel room, and and before games and, you know, but, but I had not heard that. And, you know, I, what, what, what I did see in the clubhouse is players on their phones a lot, uh, pregame, but we're only in there for, you know, a short time pregame. That's not totally unusual. That's been going on for years. But what is unusual is if players were on their phones and playing video games during games, I mean, that's, that's, that's just a killer thing. Uh, that was going on last season. And quite frankly, uh, you know, Carlos Santana, I think finally had enough and that's not why he was traded uh, this off season. But I think, you know, he had seen a team that had really, you know, the Phillies went 17 and 34 down the stretch. It was one of the worst collapses in baseball history for a first place team. And, uh, you know, I, I believe, I know Gabe Kapler disputes this with me, but I believe that some players on that team quit late in this season that there wasn't a lot of effort there. He Gabe acknowledged today that he didn't think as many players were engaged as needed to be in September. Uh, to me, that says some players quit, but he, you know, again, he'll disagree with me on that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting. And uh, yeah, that's something that you now Jake Arietta came out today and said, Hey, you know, we're, we're putting a ban on ping pong and, and uh, movies and video games an hour before the game players all have to be in the dugout for the game. Um, you know, we all have to be on the field for the national anthem, you know, It's so it's going to be interesting to see how they, if they end up really following through on that. And I think it's important. I think, I think, I, I think the fact this year that now that they have Harper and McCutcheon, two former MVPs, David Robertson, who played with the Yankees, uh, you, you know, um, and JT Realmuto who's kind of like this, just, you know, guys like a, a beast. I, I, I think there's going to be less, it's going to be a lot harder to get away with stuff this this season uh, than it was like, maybe last season.
0: I hope Gabe Kapler doesn't go the Chip Kelly route. Chip Kelly was the football coach at Oregon, and he was very progressive and coming up with new things and not punting when he was at Oregon, and his team was scoring 100 points. It was outrageous. And then he goes to the pros, and he just became more conservative and just sort of went with the norm, and it didn't work. And I hope Gabe is still willing to try and do new things. You mentioned that the players during their – big collapse last year, that the players sort of quit. And I think managers get blamed for a lot of things that is not within their control. But players giving up and players not trying or players not caring, I feel like that does reflect poorly on the manager. Does Gabe feel that as well?
1: You know, he said today, you know, regarding the the whole TV video game thing, he said, listen, I take responsibility as the manager. Um, You know, again, it's tough to say because Gabe you know, I, I asked him multiple times late in the season last year. He was asked about it in the off season. I think he was even asked about it again early this spring. Do you think your players quit on you in February, uh, in in August, or September? And he says absolutely not. So it's, it's really tough for me to say if he thinks that that reflects poorly on him because he he says he doesn't believe that it happened. Um, I do believe that you know some players quit on him late in the season, and I do think it was a lack of. You know, I I do think that he missed some opportunities to say something to the team. He ended up finally saying something to the team late in the season, but by that time all hope was lost. And you know, I, I remember being in Colorado and talking about this collapse, and I said and I said to him, Why don't you say something? Why don't you call a team meeting? He's like and his response was, I'm not just gonna call a team meeting just to call a team meeting. If I have a if I need something to say, if I have something to say and I believe it'll have an impact, then I'll say it but I'm not just going to call TV uh, a team meeting just to start yelling at people or just to, just to speak. And yeah, I, I kind of understand what he's saying, but my feeling on it is, is so then you're just going to going to kind of go down with the ship and not do anything about what's happening. I mean, you have to try something. I mean, cause cause doing nothing is not working. And um, you know, I think that that is, you know, so I, I you know, and again, we've, I, I, I said these things to him in, in Colorado and I, you know, um, but, but he feels differently, but, and, but what, what I do think was interesting, like I just said, is that after he said he wasn't going to say anything, just to say something, he ended up actually having a team meeting late in the season and, and expressing some of those things. But by that time it was, it was lost, you know, like just because you don't know a team meeting is going to work. Doesn't mean you don't, tr- you, you don't have one, you know, like Charlie Manning used to have team meetings you know, maybe once or twice a year, I would say maybe two or three times a year. And sometimes they had a tremendous impact and they really turned the team around. Sometimes it didn't work, but it doesn't mean you don't try doing it. You know, It doesn't mean you don't state your case or make your case to, the, to your players. Um, and that's why I think Charlie was so good is he could really read the room well and he knew when to address things and, and went to kind of kick people in the butt.
0: The last player I'm going to ask you about before we wrap it up is Mikel Franco. Franco's been up now. I think this is, what, his fourth or fifth year in the league. He came up, I think it was the same year as Chris Bryant. They both had the service time manipulation done on them, and they were called up the day that they were eligible, uh, where, of course, the team got the extra year. And people thought he was going to be a Chris Bryant-like player, not in terms of the exact skill set, but they thought he was going to have monster power. He had that one spring training where he was going berserk, and people thought he was going to potentially lead the league in home runs. And his development just has fizzled. He's never quite panned out. Do they still have hopes for him?
1: Uh, they do. Yeah, I think they do. They, they There was that one stretch last year from like mid-June through early August where he was really, really good. Uh, but then you know, he kind of faded away again. The final month and a half of the season became rather ordinary. So I think what they're hoping is, I don't know if they necessarily expect him to become, you know, an all-star caliber third baseman, but in this lineup, honestly, I, I don't think they really need him to be that. I, you know, like, like last year, you went into the season, you go, you know, Michael Franco could be your three hole hitter. You know, and now you're going, Michael Franco's probably no better than your seven hole hitter. So if Michael Franco can just put up average league, average production at third base, that's going to be, you know, that's going to be pretty welcome. You know, he's not great defensively. Uh, but if he can put, if he can put up league average production at third base, or maybe even surprise some people and finally get things to click, uh, maybe he could be better than that. You know, it's interesting. I was looking at Mike Moustakis, his career, uh, with the Royals. Cause I thought, I, I personally thought that they should have gone after Mike Moustakis to play third base. Uh, they weren't interested. Uh, but, Mike Moustakis, if you look at his career numbers through his age, 25 season, he was actually, I think, worse, much worse offensively than Michael Franco through his age, 25 season. So, and then when Mustakas turned 26, he actually had like a really good year his age, 26 season. I think he might've even made the all-star team that year. And that might've been the year that the uh, Royals won the world series. Uh, so my point being, as bad as Michael Franco and as inconsistent as he's been, he's still a really young player. So in that regard, yeah, maybe maybe he could kind of finally get things to click. And all of a sudden people are going, oh, my gosh, this is this is amazing. He's he's, he's hitting 275. He's on pace for 35 home runs. He's on pace for 90 RBIs, and he's doing it in the seventh spot for the Phillies. Uh, and if that actually does happen, then this team could be – even tougher to be because they're going to have a really, really deep lineup.
0: Your Twitter bio mentions that you were in the movie major league. Is that just a Twitter bio thing or is that true?
1: That, it's true, but it's kind of uh, a little tongue in cheek, I guess you could say, because I, uh, you know, I'm from Milwaukee and they filmed major league in Milwaukee in whatever year that 87, 88, 89, one of those years, I was an extra in the movie and there, but there is very much a scene one scene probably could see me for about three to four seconds holding a sign that says Indian fever. And, uh, you know, that, that's it. So it's kind of like, you know, I say I'm in the movie major league, don't have a speaking part. If you blink, you would miss me. But I saw it when I was in the theater for the first time and I was a little kid and I went absolutely bananas. And it's it's fun when that movie comes on every once in a while, because I'll wait for that scene and, and, and see myself and kind of takes me back to that time when, uh, my dad took me down to basically stand around for four or five hours one afternoon on a weekday just to, and just to be part of that movie making experience is a lot of fun
0: you've been listening to Todd Zalecki. Todd covers the Phillies for MLB.com you can give him a follow on Twitter at Todd Zalecki. Todd thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today
1: thanks, appreciate it